What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's May 10th, 2012. At a home in Allenton, Darby, six children are getting ready for bed. Jade, John, Jack, Jesse, Jaden, and Dwayne are between the ages of 5 and 13. They all share the same mother, but their home life has been anything but normal. Their father, Mick Philpot, has sired at least a dozen other children some of whom lived with them for a time. Other partners of his and their mothers come and go regularly. Several hours later, in the early morning, the children are fast asleep. The adults of the house, Philpot and his wife, Maraid, are sitting downstairs. Suddenly, the house gets hotter and fills with smoke, a fire is raging, and it isn't stopping anytime soon. The blaze rips through the family home. Fire coming out of the letterbox, fire coming from around the sides of the doors. The two adults escape, but the six children are still trapped inside. The fire brigade were in the house, flashing lights everywhere. I pushed to the front of the house, and I could see the uh, firefighters bringing the children out, some in blankets. And the ambulance were trying to resuscitate some of them. Firefighters and paramedics battle in vain to save their lives. All six children perish. The damage to the house is drastic, and there is no way that those poor six children could possibly have escaped. Smoke inhalation alone would have been deadly. Philpot and Maraid weep before cameras in front of the British public, mourning their loss and asking the public to leave them to their loss. But it was all a facade. Philpot knew exactly what happened, because he deliberately started the fire. It was all part of an elaborate plan. I think that the most tragic part of this case is the fact that six children's lives were lost in Mick Philpott's attempts to basically rescue his own ego. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Mick Philpot. Michael Mick Philpot was born in 1956. He grew up in Derby as part of a large Roman Catholic family. Forensic pathologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that his upbringing would be considered normal. It would have been an environment in which um, his parents' attention was diluted across many children, so he wouldn't have been the, the centre of attention by, by any means. And we know that his mother worked very hard. Um, she had a job at a, a factory that, that she only retired from when she was quite old. 
So he didn't appear to come from an unusual background by, by any means. In 1975, at the age of 19, Philpot joined the army. He also began to show signs of a violent temper, especially toward his girlfriends. His behavior didn't go unnoticed. Philpot repeatedly got in trouble with the law for being abusive. Philpot began seeing a girl while in the army. Their relationship started when she was only 15 years old. In 1978, she tried to end the relationship via a letter. That didn't go well. Local journalist Martin Naylor recalls what happened. The story with that is that he had a girlfriend back in Derby. He was stationed wherever his regiment were. She'd had the temerity to send him a, a Dear John letter ending their relationship, so he decided to go AWOL from the army, rock up at her house in Derby and attack her with a knife. And then when her mother tried to intervene, he, he attacked the mother too. Philpot stabbed her 27 times, but miraculously, she lived. He was sentenced to seven years for attempted murder and grievous bodily harm. Philpot served just over three years. In 1981, he was released. And, says author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel, he went right back to his old habits. From that point onwards, Philpot set about controlling every woman he had any contact with, and to do so in the most outrageous way. In 1986, Philpot got married for the first time. He and his new wife had three children together, but there were problems. His wife said Philpot was controlling. She soon found a reason to divorce him. She caught him cheating on her with a teenaged girl. It would become clear Philpot had a knack for manipulating young girls, says author and forensic psychologist Chris Carter. I think he would have gone for any woman to go for him, but, but in his case, he went for younger girls, usually girls who were very upset and down and depressed, either because they came out of a bad relationship or they were mistreated by their parents. Um, girls that had no self-esteem. You can pick them out of a crowd, you know. They, they think they're, they're ugly, they think that they're inadequate, they think that they cannot have a boyfriend, that everybody hates them, that the world hates them. They, all they need is a little bit of love. It's somebody to, to be there and show them that they are beautiful, that they matter, that they are somebody. And, and he knew how to do that. He would approach the girls that were like in the lowest they could be, and he would be that person. On her 16th birthday, his teenaged girlfriend moved in with him to his home at 18 Victory Road. She soon became pregnant and gave Philpot two more children in quick succession. It was far from a romantic fantasy, though. Both of her children were boys, and Philpot wanted a girl. So he would regularly beat her, and even encouraged their sons to join in the violence against her. After countless threats and plenty of abuse, she left him, taking her children with her. When somebody leaves you, 
Um, there's another thing that happens with the human brain. It's like jealousy automatically happens, right? For for one reason, we are all, and he, in Philpott's case, even more because he was so self-absorbed. You think you are the best thing on earth. Philpott claimed he wanted to have as many children as possible. By the time he was 50, he had fathered 17 children and had many relationships going on at the same time. In 2000, Philpott met Marae Duffy, a 19-year-old single mother. He also met another single mother, 16-year-old Lisa Willis. Philpott carried on both relationships simultaneously. Mick Philpott was a man who was incredibly manipulative, incredibly controlling, and had managed to basically convince these two women over a course of several years that, that this was, you know, a really good thing, that actually they were lucky to have some of his attention. In 2003, Philpott marries Mary Duffy, but keeps his full-time live-in mistress. In fact, she's the bridesmaid at the marriage to Marie Duffy, both bearing his children, living in a council house in Allenton near Derby. They are, well, one can only describe it as extraordinary. All three moved into a council house together where they lived on government benefits. In 2006, Philpott's family continued to grow. The living situation was far from ordinary a fact that Philpott thought he could use to his advantage. I think that Mick Philpott breathes the oxygen of publicity. I think he absolutely regales in being the, the centre of attention. He loves being talked about. And I don't think the nature of attention matters very much to him. It doesn't matter if it's positive attention or negative attention as long as people are talking about him. A bigger family necessitated a bigger home, didn't it? So... Philpott approached local journalist Martin Naylor. He had approached us as the Telegraph to say that he was living in the house with his wife and his then a girlfriend. They had children together, there were lots of them there, and he wanted a bigger council house. So we thought that by coming to his local newspaper, he would get a bigger council house. So we ran the story. Uh, the following day, it was picked up on by all the nationals, um, especially some of the more right-leaning ones, as you'd imagine. One of them, I think the, one of the tabloids, dubbed him Shameless Mick, and the kind of the media frenzy roller coaster went on from there. The tabloids had a field day with Shameless and Jobless Mick, ridiculing him for demanding more from the government. The Telegraph also reported that he had originally decided to have a vasectomy, but backed out, adding more and more children to his household. In 2007, Philpott appeared on The Jeremy Kyle Show, known for exhibiting family drama in an often exploitative way. Philpott spoke on the program about his large family and his benefits lifestyle. When challenged, he made a rude gesture at the host, drawing more ire from the general public. He becomes quite famous as a benefits scrounger because he significantly never has a job and is claiming at one point 60000 a year in benefits as well as being given a house. And uh, He parks a caravan effectively at the side of the semi-detached council house he's living in in which he alternates. Philpott enjoyed his newfound fame. 
He appeared on other television shows, including a special about benefits culture with Darby's member of parliament, Anne Whittacombe. Philpot was mocked by both Whittacombe and Jeremy Kyle for not working, but he seemed to love the attention all the same. He was basically having his malevolent ego fed from every angle here. But what he really didn't care about was the impact that this had on his family. His kids were bullied at school because of the attention that they got through him being in the press. His partner and and his wife were basically labelled as stupid and ignorant. But that didn't matter. As long as people were talking about him, that's all that he cared about. There is nothing about it that I find admirable. Philpott saw himself as some kind of grand figure, effectively bragging about his success with women, his success in scrounging on the benefits. Although Philpott didn't work, he claimed a hand injury and his criminal record kept him from a job, both Lisa and Moraid had jobs. They both worked as part-time cleaners, and all the money went directly to Philpott. But far from being a source of their own income and a source of independence for them, he would basically take all of their wages. He would be the one who drove them to work, dropped them off and picked them up. Um, He wanted to be fully in control of, of these women's lives. They didn't even have their own house key. Mick Philpott is somebody who has to be in control. He has always got to be the one making the decisions and other people basically have to pander to his every whim. It was a level of control that would eventually lead him to do the unspeakable. In 2012, now 56-year-old Phil Pott was living with his wife, his mistress, and their 11 children in a council house in Derbyshire. By now, Phil Pott was known nationally as a benefits scrounger, who used his large family to get money out of the government. But behind the cameras and tabloids was an incredibly controlling man. He was also obsessed with sex and would regularly bring around partners outside of the two he lived with. There were like 11 kids in the house, a small house, um, two sexual partners, and he used to bring a friend for sex parties and stuff. It's a horrible environment with the kids in the house and stuff, and you're doing all this. So it doesn't take an expert to realize, okay, this is not a good situation. One of the regular partners was Phil Pott's friend, Paul Mosley, and he would encourage Moraid to participate in threesomes. Moraid was often coerced into public sex and voyeurism with both men. In February, Phil Pott's mistress, Lisa, decided she'd had enough. She took her five children and moved out. Forensic psychologist Chris Carter says this couldn't have been easy, especially considering Philpott's temper. A lot of people won't have that courage, but she just decided, look, enough is enough. She did the right thing. She didn't go up to him and say, I'm leaving you, because I think if she tried doing that, he would overpower her, because he was a violent person, and say, no, you're not leaving, or maybe lock her in. He, he would have done something. Um, but she did the right thing. She walked away first and then sent them a message and said, I'm gone, you know, and then he couldn't find her anymore. 
This was a point at which Lisa had decided to take control, to take her children and to go to a women's refuge. And the key thing here is that Mick hadn't decided that that was okay. He was the one that decided when relationships were over. He was the one that decided what happened on a daily basis. So the fact that Lisa had betrayed him by taking that power away from him, it was only going to result in, in something really alarming in return. Lisa's departure wasn't just a personal blow. It was a financial one. Not only did he lose her income as a cleaner, but he was no longer entitled to the benefits for their children. The custody hearing was set for May 11th the same year, and Philpot, determined to keep the children as cash cows, concocted a plan to ensure they would be returned to Victory Road. I think Maraid was very much under Mick Philpott's control at this point in time. I think he would have um, quite easily have talked her around into actually being a part of this. Out of the vanity and arrogance of the man, together with his wife Maraid and Paul Mosley, the kind of live-in, sometime lover, they hatch a scheme to set fire to the house in Victory Road in an effort to f- provoke the council to give him bigger house, but also to blame his mistress. She will not get the custody of the children. It is an extraordinary, bizarre plan. In early May, Philpot told the police that Lisa threatened to kill him, setting the pretense. And on the same day as the custody hearing, May 11th, gasoline was poured through the house's letterbox and set alight. While Philpot and Maraid were downstairs, six of Philpot's children were asleep upstairs. The fire that he set, that they have set between them, takes hold at a pace far greater than they could possibly have conceived. And the house is literally filled with smoke in a matter of instants. In his typically vainglorious way, Philpot makes a particularly appalling 999 call saying, my children are inside. Former neighbor Daniel Stevenson went outside and saw the house engulfed in flames. My brother woke me up, and that's when I looked out the window, seeing thick black smoke coming from the house. I got out of bed, got dressed, put pajamas on, uh, trainers, ran out the door, went straight to the property. Just wanted to help, so there was no way of getting in through the front, so I went round the back, climbed over the caravan, and dropped down the other side. I got into the back garden and I seen Mick and Marie there and was crying, screaming, shouting. They was on the phone to the emergency services, I believe, and they were saying that my house is on fire and there was out my baby, my baby. And Stevenson tried to search inside the house, but he could only make it in a few feet before the smoke obscured everything. It was very, like, misty because everything's just happening so fast. I attempted to go into the house. I got as far as the kitchen, couldn't go any further. The smoke was just too thick, it was choking, black, couldn't see anything, so I had to come back out. There was a ladders at the side going up to a window. I tried climbing up to there, and there was a ratchet in the window where Mick's been trying to smash in, I think, and there was smoke coming from that window. I then came back down the ladders and I climbed up onto a wooden frame what he's been built in onto his conservatory. I climbed up to the window to see if any windows were open. None of them were open. Then I put one of the windows through with a wrench from from the other window. I chucked out the window 
It smashed straight through. I then continued putting the window through with the, the pickaxe on the roof, smashing all the window up. I was about to climb into the property. Again, couldn't see nothing, couldn't hear nothing, and hear no screams. Emergency services made it to the scene and also tried to get inside, but the fire was just too ferocious. Fire coming out of the letterbox, fire coming from around the sides of the doors. By the time it was safe to enter the house, it was much too late. Five of the children, 10-year-old Jade, 9-year-old John, 7-year-old Jack, 6-year-old Jesse, and 5-year-old Jaden had all lost their lives. 13-year-old Dwayne was taken to the hospital, but he later died from his injuries. The damage to the house is drastic, and there is no way that those poor six children could possibly have escaped. Smoke inhalation alone would have been deadly. Shocked neighbors began to spill out onto the street as the full horror of the tragedy became apparent. I think nearly the whole street was out on the front. Uh, the fire brigade were in the house, flashing lights everywhere. I pushed to the front of the house and I could see the uh, firefighters bringing the children out. Um, some, some in blankets, I think they used the blankets to try and protect them a bit. Bit more. And the ambulance were trying to resuscitate some of them. I was just hoping that the kids would survive and recover. I was just, um, didn't really know what to think at the time. Didn't know what had happened, didn't know what caused the fire, just didn't know anything. The heartbreaking misfortune soon attracted the attention of the local press. Martin Naylor was on the early ship that morning and got a phone call. And I could hear that the news desk phone was ringing, so I made a bit of a dash for it. I grabbed the phone and it was the on-duty police press officer. And she said to me, we're just letting the local media know early that there's been a really big house fire in Allenton and five kids are dead. Within about five or ten minutes of knowing that it was in Victory Road, I phoned the local news agent who I'd know because I'd done previous stories with him. He answered the phone and I said, Joe Gritz Martin from The Telegraph, and he said, it's Mick Philpott, it's Mick Philpott's house. And I didn't even have to ask him what it was about. He knew and he blurted that out straight away. Experts arrived at the scene to determine the source of the fire. Forensic scientist Daniel Matthews was part of that team. Mostly the house was, um, was pretty much undamaged. There was, uh, the roof was intact, the walls were intact. Um, the front door was noticeably more damaged than anywhere else. And also the, the window on the landing, there was a small window on the landing upstairs that had, um, that had been um, damaged by the fire and had dropped out. But apart from that, the only way you could really tell there was a fire at the house was by small signs of some soot coming out from the vents at the top of some of the double glazed windows. The fire had started in the entrance hallway behind the front door. And from there it had spread a little bit into the living room, uh, but mostly it had spread up the stairs. The window at the very top of the stairs was open a little bit, and, and that had been breached by the fire. Now, obviously fire tends to go up and out, so effectively the stairwell from a fire in there would act almost like a chimney, in that the fire and, and the hot gases and the fumes would all go, mostly go upstairs. One of the things they needed to determine was the blaze accidental, or 
had someone started it on purpose. We had a, an arson dog handler with us that day. And that dog is trained to indicate on various different ignitable liquids such as petrol, diesel, white spirits and, and the things that we, that we commonly see um, in, in arsons. And the dog clearly indicated that uh, he thought something was present. Um, so we would take a sample from that area and then it would be sent for analysis and the analysis determined that petrol was, was there. When I completed my scene examination, I was able to say that the fire had been started deliberately. As the sun rose, the abomination of the house fire on Victory Road in Derby became apparent. Investigators revealed that the blaze which killed six children had been started on purpose. On May 11, 2012, Mick Philpot, bereaved father, seemingly tried to save all of his children from a blazing fire. But in reality, he had orchestrated the whole thing. Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and Chris Carter explain Philpott's plan. Mick Philpott's plan was essentially to exact revenge on Lisa. He'd moved from trying to control her by keeping her in a relationship with him to trying to destroy her for leaving it. He was vile towards her. He made threats towards her through other people. She was incredibly frightened. And what he was trying to do was essentially create a story, create a, a set of events that he could blame her for. I think what convinced him that this thing would work was himself. You know, his stupidity and his self-absorption that he thought, I'm too good, this plan is, is infallible. I think Philpott thought that nobody would ever leave him because he was so amazing. So I think it was a combination of everything. At first, the plan did seem to work. The day after the fire, May 12th, Lisa and her brother-in-law were arrested on suspicion of starting the fire. But they were quickly released without charge. Police began to ask around the neighborhood and found out that Philpott was considered a dangerous man. And... They begin to put together what actually happened. They find evidence of a petrol can. They find a glove. Detectives grew suspicious of the Philpots and their possible motives. On Wednesday, Philpot and Maraid appeared on television once again, holding a press conference. Their faces were wrinkled with grief, and Philpot regularly dabbed at his eyes. Maraid was so distraught, she couldn't speak. It almost defies self-deception. It is disgraceful. But at the outset, the police believe that this is something that has genuinely a, a tragedy. You know, six children, no adults in the house. You might ask, why weren't there any adults in the house? Didn't Philpott know that that the police has experts on, on reading people. You know, they have people who are trained for years on reading um, body language, facial expressions, eye movement, voice intonation, you know, everything. Philpott appeared tormented and thanked those who tried to help on the night of the fire. But body language expert Robert Phipps says Philpott clearly showed signs that he wasn't really that upset. Mick Philpott is very controlled throughout the whole interview, making a point of thanking everybody else but not really mentioning the children that have just died. The signals that he gives off are not in the normal range of somebody expressing grief, anxiety, sadness, which he should do having just lost his children. 
His face is not going through the turmoil as compared to Mairead, who you see her eyebrows are moving, her forehead has got different wrinkles in it, her face is just contorted with pain. We don't see any of that from Mick. Right from the beginning, Mick Philpott's body language is inconsistent with somebody showing grief. Mick is dabbing away with his tissue here to imaginary tears. They're not there, therefore the the tissue itself doesn't get wet, it doesn't crumple. At the end of the press conference, Philpott asked the public to leave his family alone. One thing that they don't do throughout the entire press conference is appeal for help. Who set this fire? Who killed these children? Why? Because he knows he did it. Philpott reportedly behaved strangely at the hospital as well. While visiting his children's bodies, he joked around with the mortuary staff. He also hit on a police officer and asked her back to his hotel. And it wasn't just the police who were suspicious. Philpott's performance baffled the onlooking press, too. At the end of it... I got in the car to drive back to the office and I thought, that's not right. Something's not right about that. He's not once mentioned the children. He's not mentioned them by name. He's not looked into any cameras and said, please, will someone out there help me find out who's done this? It's a suspicious fire in his own home and not once has he made an appeal to the public, to anyone who's watching, you know, please, anyone with information, come forward. Not once. So then I got back to the office... And as I walked in, I could see everyone was still stood around the TV and we all looked at each other and that was the moment that we all knew, you know, you know, something, something's wrong here. This is a game changer. Disingenuous would be a polite way of describing it. It is typical of a man who believes he alone rules the world. He is an emperor of everything he surveys. He is a man whose vanity knows no bounds, a man for whom he is the centre of the universe, which in the end convinced the police that he wasn't telling the truth, that he seemed so capable of this kind of sleight of hand. He may have convinced himself, but he didn't convince many other people. I think he's such a narcissist, he's so arrogant and, and he, he thinks he's gotten away with it that, that he thinks he's invincible. He, he thinks that his act, as he's fooled many women over the years, is going to fool the rest of us, and it certainly didn't. 88 officers working on the case took over 5,000 statements from local residents, many of whom questioned Philpott's efforts to save his children. On May 29, 2012, 18 days after the fatal blaze, Mick Philpott and his wife Moraid were arrested on suspicion of murder. And again, that was another strange scenario because I was sat at my desk and a press release pings into my inbox that says a 56-year-old man and a 31-year-old woman have been arrested on suspicion of murder in connection with the Victory Road fire and immediately... I stood up and I shouted over to news desk. I said, the Philpots have been arrested on suspicion of murder. And that was the second time in two weeks that we ran a special edition of the newspaper, and that had never happened before. Although the police wouldn't confirm on the record that this is who it was, we got confirmation via other sources that it, you know, if we said it's the Philpots that's been arrested, would we be wrong? No. 
Philpot wasn't liked by his neighbors, but they still stepped up to make sure the children were properly buried. Funeral services for the children were held on June 22nd at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Derby. The local community raised more than 15,000 pounds to pay for the funerals. Mick and Maraid Philpot, however, were not allowed to attend. It's very close-knit, Allenton. Derby as a city is a small city, but it's a very proud city. And Allenton and some of the neighbouring areas to it and some of the, I hasten to use the word poorer areas, but the less affluent areas, um, it's very close-knit, really close-knit. I mean, the outpouring of emotion from the community was huge. On November 5th, another arrest was made. Forensic evidence was able to link Paul Mosley with the gasoline that had started the fire. All three were originally charged with murder. But in December, these charges were downgraded to manslaughter. Allegedly, Paul Mosley was supposed to charge in and save the children, but that had never happened. It beggars belief to me that this charge is downgraded to manslaughter because, according to the uh, statements at the time, Phil Pott, his wife and Mosley, didn't mean to kill the children. It's a tiny semi-detached house and you've got six small children and you set fire to it. How can you not expect at least one of those children to die? It, It defies belief to me. All three pleaded not guilty to manslaughter, and so a trial was set. On February 12, 2013, at Nottingham Crown Court, prosecutors set out to prove that Mick Philpott, his wife Moraid, and their sometimes partner Paul Mosley deliberately started a fire that ended in the death of six of Philpott's children. Prosecutors intended to show the trio made a plan that went horribly wrong. Local reporter Martin Naylor was in the courtroom. I remember Mick, when he gave evidence, talking about hearing a whooshing noise. When you light petrol, you're not lighting the the fluid, you're lighting the fumes that's come off it. And in the time that it's taken for someone to put the the petrol through the letterbox and then for someone, probably him, to light it, you know, this vapour was all up in the air, there was a huge whoosh. What he was describing was the whoosh of the fire going flying up the stairs. Now, those stairs had also been recently painted with, um, I think, yacht varnish or yacht paint, which is highly flammable. So the children, although there were working smoke alarms in there, they had no chance. They literally had no chance. And obviously the uh, cause of death was um, the effects of smoke inhalation. Due to the ferocity of the fire, no evidence remained inside the house. However, traces of petrol had been found on all three of the defendants' clothing. In one of the trial's key moments, Mick Philpott was asked to give his own version of the events from that night. During the trial, 
what we've got to remember is that this is essentially another stage on which Mick Philpott performs. Um, he is playing to an audience. There are several outbursts of, of anger, and and when his his relatives shout at him in court, um, he shouts back at them and he sticks his middle finger up to them. So he he really is incredibly defiant. Um, he's incredibly showman-like in his personality. He wants to be the the centre of attention. He knows that the media circus is still going on and he wants to be the ringleader. When Mick took the stand, he was the showman that he always was. Again, he was, he was crying or supposedly crying in the dock. But the prosecution saw through all that. I don't think there was one single thing that nailed him. I think it was just the case just built up and built up and built up and was so strong. It was almost like piling bricks on top of him, just waiting, waiting for him to collapse. And I think his collapse came in his cross-examination because his dinars were just absolutely ripped apart. The trial lasted an emotionally exhausting eight weeks. The prosecution brought witnesses from the Philpott's past, including many of Mick's ex-girlfriends. They testified about his controlling nature and how he often sought out young girls to groom them. On April 2, 2013, the jury found the trio guilty of manslaughter. I recall one of Mairead's sisters standing up in the public gallery and shouting to her, I knew on day one you'd done this. I knew you'd done this before storming out. It was the first time that we'd effectively live blogged from court. We'd been given permission by the judge and my fingers were trembling as I was, you know, typing things out to send back to the office for them to on the website straight away, guilty verdict, guilty verdict. Judge Mrs. Justice Thurwall told the three of them, you are all responsible for the deliberate setting of that fire. All three of you are responsible for those deaths. Mairead Philpott and Paul Mosley were each sentenced to 17 years. Mick Philpott was sentenced to life and was immediately sent to Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire. Mrs. Justice Thurwall described him as a disturbingly dangerous man and as the driving force behind the wicked plan. But I cannot think of anyone who more richly deserves to spend the rest of his life behind bars than Mick Philpott, who killed six of his own children. He is a man who deserves nothing but the greatest contempt. And I cannot understand, I will never understand, why he was not charged and convicted of murder. I think that Mick Philpott did an incredibly evil and an incredibly selfish thing. He was essentially looking to, to get revenge for, for a perceived wrong against him by a woman who he thought was under his control. The most tragic part of this case is the fact that six children's lives were lost in Mick Philpott's attempts to, to basically rescue his own ego. There is not one single word you can find to explain or apologise for his actions. Seldom have I ever thought of someone as grotesque and as thoughtless and as vain as Philpott is. There is something about him that genuinely does send a chill down your spine. Mick Philpott's lust for revenge led to the death of six of his own children. For the neighbours who had known and tried to rescue the children, it was an emotional moment. 
I was relieved that it was over. I was a bit shocked that it was him. Because if you did see him with his kids, his family, um, very heartbreaking. Because uh, he, did, he did love his kids. He showed that very much. I think it was some sort of ploy to to get something out of. I didn't think it was meant to spread that fast to fire. I didn't think it was meant to kill anyone. I just think it was a very stupid thing f f to do. And unfortunately, he paid for it. Whatever Phil Potts' intention, Dwayne, Jade, John, Jack, Jesse, and Jaden were never coming back. The city of Derby now chooses to remember them and not their parents. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Bogle, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. We would love it if you could take a sec and leave us a review. This is the last episode of Season 2 of What Makes a Killer. Stay tuned for when we'll be back with Season 3.